0: First reading is from Zechariah, starting in chapter 9, verses 9 to 10 and 16 to 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young woman.
1: The second reading is taken from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they are gain- you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves their life loses it, and whoever hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor
0: Would you pray with me?
2: Father, we ask to see Jesus as the King of the cosmos, as the supreme ruler of our lives, and not according to our own expectations, our own imaginations of him. Rather, may we submit to what he expects of us, that which is good and pleasing in your sight. For the honor and glory of his name, we pray. Amen. So we're at the final countdown to Jesus' hour of glory. It would be five more days when Jesus would be lifted up like a billboard sign, as we've heard from Tyler last Sunday. The Son of God hanging nude and gnarled between heaven and earth was God's ultimate sign, his final advertisement to the whole world of his unimaginably reckless love, displaying in no uncertain terms the inhumanity of sin and the totality of his grace for all people. That's the cross. Now, in today's gospel reading, the John the Evangelist retells the last time that Jesus would be visiting Jerusalem. Now, no longer incognito like when he had visited the temple. And drove out the money changers and vendors. If you recall, that temple cleansing sign was the second sign that he performed. The first being him changing water into wine. Now this time in Jerusalem, the last time he'll be there, everyone knew who Jesus was. But they only knew who he was like you would a TV personality. Like a celebrity pop star. That controversial politician that polarized everyone. See, most of the people knew Jesus only from a distance, only hearing the most ridiculous and incredible rumors about him. They knew Jesus as they imagined him to be, as they expected him to be. But the thing about Jesus that everyone in Israel was unanimous at this point was that he should be king. He should become king. For all that they've heard about Jesus, and some of them have seen what he could do, Jesus had to be the promised Messiah of Israel. Now, how did almost the entire Jewish world at this point come to regard Jesus in this most superlative degree? Let's turn now in our Bible to John chapter 12. In verse 12, it's the opening day to the Passover festival. Again, Passover was like the national wedding anniversary party that commemorated the covenant marriage between God and Israel through Moses. Now, as a wedding anniversary party, the Jewish people celebrated by bringing their anniversary gift, as it were, a sacrificial animal. They were to present that to God in the temple. Of course, the presentation of the animal meant no less than the people presenting themselves to God, pledging to obey all of God's laws. So that's on the end of the people of Israel. Now what's on God's end? On God's end, his anniversary gift to Israel was twofold. On the one hand, the gift was the perpetuity of his covenant with them through the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices, the laws, which conditionally renewed Israel's exclusive access to him as God. Their unique privilege to name God as Yahweh and worship him as his people. To live out and enjoy his laws like no other people in the world. The gift was the setting apart of Israel as God's chosen from all the rest. That's on the one hand. And on the other was God's future promise to establish Israel as the kingdom of heaven on earth. Pending, of course, on Israel's faithfulness. The promise depended on Israel sticking it out to obey the covenant. And only when God, only then would God permanently establish His kingdom on earth through Israel. And that entailed God raising an anointed Jewish leader to facilitate the eschaton, that is the end of times, for when all of heaven would be infused into all of creation. All of that, all of that background to say that. Passover was this annual renewal of marriage vows. An annual renewal of marriage vows. God to Israel, Israel to God, the exchanging of gifts. Israel's obedience, perpetual obedience to the law as God upholds Israel as the covenant people, as the holy people. And then together they're anticipating the future when God will permanently establish his kingdom through Israel via the Messiah, the Jewish leader. So that's all background to this gospel reading. Now, in this particular Passover feast, reached this boiling point as residents in Jerusalem and the pilgrims all over Palestine, they heard that Jesus was coming. Again, because of what they've heard of Jesus, what they've seen of Jesus, they perceived in Jesus this materialization of God's ultimate anniversary gift, the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Jewish Messiah to reestablish Israel, to overthrow their Gentile overlords and set up the kingdom of heaven. The air was swelling up with messianic fervor. That's what was happening here. But again, how did everyone in Palestine come to this never-seen-before messianic craze over Jesus? We read in verse 17 and 18. There was a local crowd from Bethany Now that was a village close to Jerusalem like Scarborough is to downtown Toronto. That crowd from Bethany had just seen with their own eyes Jesus raising one of their locals, Lazarus, back from the dead. Now the astonishing part was that Lazarus had been dead for four days. He had been dead for a couple of days already. His corpse was already decomposing. The people could smell it. So the crazy rumors were not that Jesus had simply administered CPR to Lazarus when I mean, he had just stopped breathing. The crazy rumors were that Jesus reconstituted an already rotting corpse into the same living man that was and is Lazarus. Now imagine seeing that for yourself in, right in front of you. And then hearing many, many other people saying the same thing. Now, news of this got into Jerusalem and its surrounding area at the peak of pilgrimage rush hour, when so many travelers were already near the capital. Now, this intensified messianic frenzy all around and especially inside the city. Now, from what Josephus, a Jewish-Roman historian, said around the same time, he had estimated that a throng of around 2.5 million people had converged into Jerusalem. They were feverish to glimpse Jesus, to hail him, the son of Joseph and Mary, as the king of Israel, rumored to have this authority and this grip over death itself. Now we remember in Toronto, that historic summer in 2019, when the rappers won the NBA championship, it was reported that more than a million people crowded the victory parade path into Nathan Phillips Square. Our city had not seen anything like that since John, uh, Pope John Paul II in 2002. So imagine the raptors parade crowd, but more than double. Jewish pilgrims and proselytes crammed into Jerusalem, almost spilling over the ramparts and jamming the city gates. They were wielding branches from palm trees, palm trees, Now, this detail about palm branches was supplied only by John's gospel. We have not heard anything else about palms from the synoptic gospels. It's only in this chapter in John 12 where we get the name of today, Palm Sunday, from palm branches. See, the palm branch carried um, symbolic political baggage. See, some 200 years ago from Jesus' day, The newly liberated Jewish people, they carried and waved palm branches on their victory march into Jerusalem after Judas Maccabee had just defeated the Greek tyrant, Antiochus Epiphanes. They were on their way to cleanse and reconsecrate the temple of God that Antiochus had just desecrated. Since that day, a symbol of the palm branch was impressed upon the Jewish psyche to mean liberation, to mean victory over their Gentile overlords, Every Jewish coin was then stamped with the image of a palm branch. Now, waving the palm branch back then was equivalent to now, today, when you pick up your national flag and you wave it. That's what's happening here. So everyone was clamoring for Jesus. They were waving the palm branches. They shouted a portion from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The meaning is so plain and obvious. Jesus is being hailed as the liberating Messiah conqueror, Savior of Israel, who will free them from the Roman oppressors, just as Judas Maccabeus had from the Hellenizers. They regarded Jesus as holding command even over death itself. Rome would have nothing on this. The anointed one of God who holds the keys of Sheol, the keys to Hades, That was what everyone imagined Jesus to be. That was what they expected Jesus to be. They were not wrong. They were not wrong. Jesus even played into the crowd's craze so to fulfill the scriptures. In verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and processed into the capital on it. The words from the prophet Zechariah foretold of this moment when Israel's king would come on a donkey a lowly animal that carried people's luggage, and not on a royal military steed. Jesus did so to affirm the crowd's testimony about him. He was confirming for them what they hailed him as. But Jesus was not going to play into how they imagined him to be. Jesus was going to show how he was not how they expected him to be. Now it's easy for us who are Christians are tuning in today, to affirm that Jesus is Lord. We affirm that every week in the Creed. But each of us would then imagine, we would imagine how Jesus should be Lord. Each of us have an expectation for how Jesus should be Lord of our life, of our children's life, of this world. We would imagine that since Jesus is Lord and he says he is sovereign and good, Nothing bad should happen to us or to anyone else. Now, we won't say those words exactly. We know that's not realistic. But we often play around with that idea in our hearts. And we know we've toyed around with that idea when we find ourselves irrecoverably disappointed and angry with God when tragedy does happen to us, to our children, to anyone else around us. We'll be irrecoverably disappointed and angry with God. Now some of us expect that since Jesus fed the hungry, that he healed the sick, he released the oppressed, his lordship over the world should be about championing socialist policies or about social justice initiatives. Some of us imagine that since Jesus called everyone to repent of their sin, his lordship over the world should be about calling everyone to, out of their sins and into a purity of life and doctrine. And some of us expect that since Jesus welcomed every person, no matter who they were, his lordship over the world should be about progressive values, affirming every person, no matter who they are, where they come from, and what they've been through. Now, first century Israel expected that since Jesus was proven, Mastery over the natural world. They multiplied food and resurrected the rotting dead. His lordship over the world should be to get rid of the Romans and reestablish Israel. We hail Jesus as King and Messiah, but we imagine him to be our version of Messiah. Expect him to be a Messiah in our own imagination. But Jesus, Jesus would have nothing to do with that. He would have nothing to do with with that, with us, with anyone's expectations. In John's gospel in chapter 2, earlier on, during another Passover, just after he had cleansed the temple, Jesus said this, or John had said this, when Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in everyone. Jesus would not and will never entrust himself to the demands and expectations of anyone, not even ours. If Jesus is really Lord and Messiah, he's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who will make the demands. He's the one who sets the expectations. We and everyone else must submit to him We must all submit to what he demands, for he is sovereign, he is Lord, he is Messiah. He will not bow down to anyone of our expectations. But how exactly will Jesus be Lord? How exactly will he be Messiah? How will he demonstrate his lordship over us in the world? We read in verse 23 and 24. Jesus let his disciples in on what his true lordship should look like what true messiahship is. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now this is the only passage we have of Jesus interpreting in detail his own manner of death. See, the writers of the New Testament would unpack the theological riches of Christ's death on the cross much later on. But it's here in John 12. This is the only lengthy primitive commentary we hear directly from the lips of Jesus. Interpreting for us his own death. According to Jesus, his death will be like a seed falling to the ground. Then rupturing its body, setting aside its own individual existence. Shedding away its own matter and mass to unleash a far greater and bigger and expansive potential from its own inherent life. In a few days, Jesus will show unequivocally what kind of Messiah He will be to all of Jerusalem, what kind of Lord He will be to the world. He will stretch further the meaning of Messiah beyond the bounds and framework of the Jewish people, of the Roman, Roman Greco-Roman world, and even ourselves. Now, in verse 20, a number of Greek proselytes came to Jesus. He'd ask, they'd ask for an audience with Jesus. Now, this had triggered for him a future moment of his death. It was like that wedding banquet in Cana. Mary came to Jesus. You gotta help us. That triggered for him the hour of his glory. Now, the Greeks were former arch nemesis of the Jews, right? They represented the rest of the world who hated the Jews, outsiders, outsiders to the covenant second-class citizens in regards to Judaism. They're asking to see Jesus triggered, it triggered for Jesus, what it would take to reconcile enemies, what it would take to knit together all of the world, Jew and Gentile, what it would take to reunite those who were estranged and hostile, exiles and outcasts from Eden, without hope, without God in this world. But not only so to bring harmony in this world. It's not just about this world. It wants to bring the world back to God. Knitting all people in and through and around and all over the being of God. Stitching and sewing us back into the fabric of God's spirit. If a grain of wheat falls and dies, it bears much fruit. This is the fruit for which Jesus will die. It's the fruit of shalom. Shalom for all the world... Shalom and goodwill to all people, between people, between people and God. This is what we read in Zechariah. The prophet saw a vision. The king of Israel on a donkey. And with him is the radical disarmament of the global military complex. The declaration of an everlasting armistice. The snapping of the spear, the breaking of the bow, the chasing away of the chariots, the destruction of destruction and the violence of violence, and he shall speak peace, shalom to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. How shall this king of Israel accomplish this? By dying on a device of destruction. The Messiah shall be bent and broken, misshapen and maligned, despised and destroyed, and along with him, every sin and sorrow, every pain and pestilence, every work of the devil and death itself. Jesus would not be how everyone had imagined him to be. He was not how we would have expected him to be. Now what does he expect from us? What does Jesus demand from us? Jesus commands that which he himself carries out. Jesus expects that which he himself exhibited. Jesus demands that which he himself delivers. In the last verse, 26, whoever serves me must follow me. This is his demand now. This is what he expects from us. This is what he expects from the world. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor Jesus expects us to follow him. And following Jesus is no less than to follow his example. A student is not greater than the master. A servant is not greater than the master. If we're truly to declare and demonstrate the lordship of Jesus in Toronto, we're to lay down our lives. We're to lay down. Let's set aside our lives, our individual existence, shed our matter and mass, as it were, like a seed. Deny our rights for the sake of those whose rights are constantly being denied. To not be entitled and insist on our own comforts and luxuries and entitlements. To preserve and promote the shalom of the city, our neighborhoods, the neighbor down the hall or across the street, the co worker who's overworked, that elderly couple that you know, the widowed and the widower, the single and alone. That single parent, the burnt out and the disillusioned, the conspiracy theorist and the anti-vaxxer, the racist and the ignorant alike. For such as these, Christ was nailed to the cross. For such as us, Christ had been snuffed out. And for every one of us, every one of us, Christ was raised to immortality and he will revisit this world He'll revisit again as he did in Jerusalem. He'll come down again on a war horse to judge the living and the dead. He'll make every single thing shiny and new. There will be no more dust. There will be no more rust. No more tears. No more sweating of the brow. There will be an eternal rest. Everlasting pleasures at his right hand. That's what he's bringing Behold, our King is coming to you. He's coming to me. He's coming to everyone. He's coming to this broken and sin-sick world. He is coming. And so we shout, we live out our lives as Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel comes. He comes in the name of Yahweh. Amen.